is Transitional Matters with Chris Marshall. With Chris Marshall. We've gathered the best thinkers from around the world to talk about the most important social, environmental, financial, technological, and geopolitical transitions that affect your life. Transitional Matters is all about bringing the greatest thinkers directly to your ears. The most important trends, megatrends, and transitions that are going on around us. Now zip up and put your headphones on. Broadcasting direct from the UK, here's your host, Chris Marshall. Well, welcome to this episode of Transitional Matters. Today, I'm, I'm joined by Greg Guerin. Greg and I, we've had conversations for years. Normally, actually, I'm going to throw myself under the bus a little bit here. Normally, at the end of a night, after we've been at a conference, and all the other guests are starting to meander back, and we're left talking about all these different things going on around the world. So that's kind of why I've got you on, because Greg comes from, I guess, a fairly unique position where you work for an asset management firm and what you see going on is all these different drivers of change and trends in the world rather than being, let's say, some of the other guests I get on are hyper-specialists in just one area. So I want to dive in, I guess, kind of some of the things that you see going on. We're not really going to talk about the actual kind of investment side itself. Today, we're going to talk about kind of those underlying drivers. But what are some of the things, just to give people a flavor of some of the things that you spend your day talking about in terms of things driving the world forward, what are some of the things which you see going on that get you most excited at the moment? Yeah, it's tectonic shifts in the use of labor. And I think the major collaborator that we see AI becoming is a pretty powerful tool. I think a lot of people overly worry about loss of jobs. And I do want to be mindful and cognizant that, and I liked in your book, Chris, you pointed out that in the moment, sometimes those shifts can have pretty rough impacts. And so I don't want to minimize that there will be people displaced in the near term, uh, but what that will do long-term to society and even in the short term to certain uh, pockets of society are going to be tremendous. And I always like reminding myself, so the Guerin family on Guerin Lane, New Jersey, was literally dairy farmers as recent as my great-grandfather. So it's I only need to go back two and a half generations and I would be milking cows. And I'm so thankful that I'm not milking cows. And as of the 1790 census in the United States, 95% of people were farmers in some degree. So to come now and know that I, I would have been a farmer even in the late 1800s. So I'm glad that I'm not. And I see the AI not as a replacement tool for most workers, but as a uh, collaborative tool, much like the calculator. But I'm also excited from a society perspective in what some of these new technologies will do in that they will replace current occupations, but that they will free people up to do things in the future that we don't even know. Like, uh, I'm so glad now there are people that are focused on streamable content because I love streamable content. And 40 years ago, there was nobody focused on streamable content. So I'm glad that, that those people will be freed up to go do some things like that. I think you've just made a really interesting point on two counts. So you're absolutely right. My view of kind of of where AI and machine learning and all this kind of fits in 
is that we become superhumans. So I, you know, I see the phrase being bounced around at the moment, which I completely agree with, that it's not AI that's going to replace you, but the person using AI will. And it's that collaboration. I think Hollywood does a brilliant narrative on this, that it's always us versus the robots. But actually, I think it's going to be collaboration. And we're going to start magnifying our abilities. I do also think, you know, coming from a kind of behavioral science and, and psychology background, I do think that it potentially also magnifies our weaknesses. It magnifies maybe like the inequality and skills gaps in the short term. Super interesting. One of the things that was going through my head, and I don't have this research to hand, so I'm going to make it up, which is always a dangerous thing to do. Somebody did a research paper recently looking at the productivity increase of James Watts's steam engine. So we're talking like 1770s, 1780s. They basically said that it increased productivity in the economy by 25%. They have already looked at businesses harnessing AI and they see a productivity increase of 35%. This is huge. You're absolutely right. That is fascinating. I should note if people are, if your listeners are interested, there is a fascinating article on Harvard Business Review called Collaborative Intelligence. That's what really shaped a lot of my thoughts on that. And it's called Humans and AI are Joining Forces. And I also want to make make a clear point. I don't think it's just AI. I think blockchain uh, is another technology and largely digitalization, although I, I think that's pretty clear at this point. And the energy transition, I think, are really going to enable people to trade a lot more. So I just wanted to make sure I, I wasn't just saying it was AI, but I do think AI is obviously the topic of the moment. Um, but want to make sure we touch on some of those other ideas because my kids are playing Settlers of Catan a lot. And there's a lot of really interesting takeaways. I think it, you map out effectively an island and then you quote, settle different parts of the island and different pockets of this island produce different things. There are five things that they produce, sheep, wheat, iron ore, bricks and lumber. And when you roll the dice and there's numbers on there that tell you, you know, if you roll an eight, this settlement produces wheat or whatever. And so it's really unique because you end up getting different things. And so, you know, my daughter will only produce on three numbers and she'll only produce the three resources on those three numbers. And you need different combinations to proceed in the game. And so you're left with either being really lucky or trading or some combination of the two. Some of the new technologies are going to open up other people around the world to be able to trade. I know it's a pie in the sky thing a couple of years ago, but it seems like we're getting close to potentially the Saharan desert, allowing those nations to export energy. If we can get the storage component into a, a possibility, right? Think about people being able to ship charged batteries like they ship barrels of oil. That would just be super cool. And it would enable other countries to export energy rather than just the Petra. Well, you know, the UK last year signed an underwater cable deal with Morocco. They are literally plugging it. So the, the UK now has two live contracts. One is plugging an underwater cable into Morocco where they're going to generate solar energy and send it to the United Kingdom. And then there's another one that goes between, I believe it's Kent and Wilhelmshaven, Germany. And there's an underwater cable there that allows, the, it's bi-directional, so it allows, a, I think it's the power of a, a basically a million homes, and it can go in either direction. That's now. That's really quite cool. That is cool. And, and the game that you, your kids are playing, like 
I think that's fundamental as well, isn't it? You know, I'm sure we're going to touch on kind of how trade works in a free market because we're both kind of on, certainly on that side of the coin that free market capitalism, while capitalism has, has had a pretty bad name in recent decades, in my view, mainly down to not capitalism, but crony capitalism, companies which are in the pocket of governments doing pretty shady things. But there comes this human innovation, doesn't there, from that process of people becoming hyper-specialists in something and then trading resources. And I want to bring that back to something you said right at the start, which is about this idea that new technologies might displace labor on day one. The history of this is, as you perfectly put, it opens up new jobs, new sectors, new industries that we can't even begin to imagine. The analogy of this is kind of, is when we look back to James Watts' steam engine, there was this massive displacement, certainly when we got to like the next iteration of the steam engine, so George Stevenson's locomotive, the primary transport method before that was horse and car. There were hundreds of thousands of people employed in looking after horses, farriers, vets, cart, menders, I'm making occupations up now. I think it's super exciting, but we've got to just help people through this transition phase. I guess, hence why this podcast is called Transitional Matters. Um, I think the government can play a role in that, but I'd love to see a free market or a labor transition service, and maybe government could provide a tax-free service or some sort of could enable that type of an idea. I'll give you an example. Right now in the US, we've got twice as many job openings as we have unemployed people, right? So theoretically, if we do, and everybody's talking about a recession and the unemployment rate ticking up, how could, you know, maybe all these people just get hired because there's so many jobs. Maybe those jobs are fake because of the recession. Main point though is to really specify it. I was talking to a digitalization expert at the Consumer Technology Association. And they were telling us, I'm going to forget the exact number, but it was something like, it just let's just say thousands. There were thousands of cybersecurity jobs that are currently unfilled, right? So we want to hire people, but this brings up something you said a couple minutes ago about the lack of training. So maybe people are unemployed due to a robot taking their job at McDonald's they can't jump immediately into cybersecurity, right? But where is the transitional aid to get these roles that we all desperately want filled? Like if we don't want our cyber defenses unfilled, the government doesn't want that. So we want people to be trained to be cyber specialists, but that is not an easy degree to learn. I was going to say, we we saw something similar. I mean, this kind of issue of taking somebody and moving them completely to another sector. For humans, it's not easy. I mean, let's just kind of take this back to like, I don't know, every New Year's Eve, loads of people sit down and go, okay, well, starting tomorrow, I'm going to do this, this, and this. And these are self-directed personal goals. And they, you know, we can look at studies, but like 90% of people have given up by three weeks. And talking about that move from one occupation, one skill set to a completely new one, is a daunting prospect. South Wales, obviously I'm based in Wales and South Wales, you know, is a pretty big mining community. And this is where I think we need to stop looking at averages and start looking at individual cases more. 
So what happened when those mines started to close was you got mass unemployment in a lot of those villages and towns, which actually continues today. They're still massively underemployed. But on aggregate, the UK actually filled loads of jobs. Actually, on aggregate during that same time period, there were more people being put into employment. So shifting, I completely with you. What you're saying is super interesting. And as people criticize capitalism, but you're, you know, you're Scottish economist talking about the invisible hand, which gets such a bad rap. And I find it fascinating that what you're bringing up is a classic example. I've heard that a number of times, and that's not a good thing. I don't that's not something to celebrate. The availability of labor for new technology is something to celebrate, but it's that I like what you're saying to break it from the macro to the person. And what I saw as the most recent example of this topic was during COVID, I think it was a hundred thousand workers went from working in whatever sector they were to working at Amazon in 2020. And I mean, if that's not the invisible hand solving the problem with no government intervention instantaneously, that to me was was unbelievable. I'm still shell-shocked at how many people they were able to hire. It was effectively a jobs program, but not, it was actually a job. (laughs) They needed more people to satisfy this immediate shift. That blew my mind. Versus 2007, when in the US, you had way too many people employed in the housing market. And to get them from wherever that was into FANG stocks, that's a non sequitur. So how do you retrain people? So I do hear what you're saying. Yeah, I I wonder whether the modern world we live in is sufficiently different enough from that example you just given in the US housing sector in 07 and the coal mines closing in South Wales in, I think, the 80s, is that at that point, reskilling was was actually really hard. I mean, even go back to 07, we have in, in that decade and a half or so made like learning, reskilling so easy. And I don't mean easy from the acquisition of knowledge. I mean, just access. So I wonder whether, you know, kind of these things, cause that, that's the next stage of globalization, isn't it? Is we're no longer in a kind of, I don't think we're in a, an industrial society anymore. And that's not me saying there isn't industrial processes going on. There absolutely is. But we've shifted the production system, kind of just to give listeners a background on this. I know you and me have talked about this, but we've ha- we're in the fourth iteration of a production system. We started as nomadic hunter-gatherers. We then went to an agrarian settled society. We then went through this craft industrial age, and we're now in what I'd label a, a scientific cybernetic kind of environment that's now predicated not on the industrial processes, but blending scientific understanding with our human capabilities. That's surely the next global iteration is you and me can work anywhere in the world that if there's a shortage of labor in one part, we don't actually need to migrate there to fill it. And I'm sure that's going to come true of so much more over time. And as you were saying in the beginning, with AI being able to sit alongside you, one of the things that I've always been terrified about is that I have no idea how to code. And it seems like a pretty base level necessary skill for the next gen of society. 
And one of the things I have heard pretty clear that chat GPT and the new AI bots can do is if you just say, please give me a code for such, it'll give it to you. And so as you're saying, and I want to get your thoughts on this, on the, the positive side is pretty clear in that we can potentially be retrained pretty quickly because these AIs will sit right next to us. However, as globalization brought some pretty significant shifts, I think we could agree they're largely responsible for things like Trump and Brexit and some of these frictions. What would your thought be in that globalization and now having this AI enable anybody to do any sort of work along a lot of tasks? Isn't that going to create that same sort of friction where maybe you've got 50 million people in India that are willing to work and able to do something cheaper than people in Wales or Kentucky or New York City? I think we see that in a lot of places anyway, don't we? In that actually, so just take a project such as writing my book. There was an awful lot of research behind that. I didn't actually do 100% of the research. I employed researchers. And a lot of those researchers were from all around the world. They weren't just from developed countries. They were from emerging countries that had incredible academic backgrounds. And they could do the work seamlessly with me. And I think kind of bring this to what we saw at the start of COVID was the speed of that vaccine being produced. That was partly down to AI. It was partly down to the tech we have, but it was also, we can't discount the collaboration between the researchers sat all around the world. So yeah, you're absolutely right. There are benefits, but yes, my point is that there's this transitional phase, which is super bumpy, super, it's like flying through massive turbulence, let's put it that way, that we've got to navigate. And that's coming from it's not just change as we know it in our lifetime. It's what I would label radical social change. And that is a change of pace and magnitude and a change of social philosophy, which is kind of one of the biggest changes we can ever experience. That's the challenge is that if we can get people through this period, we end up in the next golden age. We end up in, in most incredible economy and society you can ever possibly imagine. But we've just got to not lose our head through this. And I think that actually comes on to a topic that I know you and me have talked about it is slightly contentious, but some of the stuff around things like degrowth. I'll give you an example. Again, in Wales, the Welsh government came out a few months ago and they said one of their plans to tackle carbon emissions and to become a less carbon emitting country is they're not going to build any more roads. I'm just going to leave that one with you. In the short term, absolutely, carbon targets will look amazing, but it sacrifices long-term prosperity. Maybe, maybe they know something I don't. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this the whole topic of degrowth, what's your take on that? The idea of declining growth to solve problems sure sounds like a horrible movie. I wouldn't even watch it. I just think people are not thinking through even to the second step. I think um, one of the things I've, I've just continually said, and I, I largely chalk this up to the impact of social media, not blaming people for being bad people. But I think because of social media, there's a pressure to have a view on everything. And so what we're seeing is that people are having a view on every topic, 10 miles wide and not even an inch deep. 
those views are largely driven not by a comprehensive pre-thought-out worldview. They're brought out by uh, this over here and this over here. And these two views might be completely contradictory in actuality, but then that social media can accelerate and coalesce millions and millions of people around a viewpoint, which then can be weaponized or serve uh, the desires of a politician or the other way around. Politician might say, hey, I see a million people over here that like this. I'm going to say this. And now I'm popular, right? And so it really is striking that when people say we need to degrowth for X, solving equity issues, solving climate change, you name it, it really doesn't seem like there's been much more thought through. So that's why just on, on the topic, that would be my thoughts. If we want to talk about a specific idea in that, that's where we can really nail down kind of and, and unpack some of the assumptions that are built. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I, I think that would be really cool to do. One thing that just came to mind while you were saying that was this isn't really the first time, is it? I call them the, the doomsayers. Okay. That we had Malthus, good old Malthus in whatever that, that was, 1800s. Um, then we had Ehrlich who wrote Population Bomb. And it's essentially the same argument. Okay. Their predictions where they kind of went wrong. And I think this is kind of, a, I'm going to make, make this as a generalized statement that people get wrong is they see the future innovation as incremental. They see it as linear. Okay. The pace of change just being constant that if we chip away at things at the pace we are today, we'll never get to point X in time. But that is not how innovation and change works. We go through these paradigm shifts. We've already spoken about a couple of them, one being James Watt's steam engine and George Stevenson's locomotive. The most recent one is the semiconductor. That's radical change. It's paradigm shifting change. It's not linear. And that's what people are missing. And for people who don't know the history of Malthus and Ehrlich, essentially, I know you know this, Greg, that their, their kind of outlook was the population is growing too, too rapidly and food is just not going to keep up. We need to, I mean, they came up with some pretty scary ideas, like actually limiting population, decreasing population, which is not too far off the whole degrowth mantra. It's, just, it's applied to a different area of, of life, i.e. we want to cull the economy. It's just as impactful as culling a, a population. Let's get into some topics of, of around this and, and where they fit into this or wh whether they're different paradigms in your kind of head. So within the investment industry, we obviously have like a massive movement and buzz around ESG. So environmental, social and governance investing. Where does this kind of fit in your view? So because I have such a positive view on the free market, uh, I don't have an irrational view. I, I know that nothing's perfect, but because I have such a positive view on the free market, I see the negatives from centralized bureaucracies pretty clearly. And the ESG movement, I see in two ways. A lot of the people that care about it tell me, why, why is this new? We've cared about governance the whole time. We've cared about the sustainability of a company the whole time. And I'm not buying a company that I think is going to destroy the environment and light styrofoam cups on fire. Never have, never will. So in many ways, what's the need for it? I hear that from a lot of the people that have already been focused on it. And then on the other side, you see 
the potential risks from centrally planned anything. And then you see the confusion that is coming from a lot of the ESG criteria. For example, um, is Tesla an ESG company? You know, and I always like this example because like, well, he's trying to solve the environmental issues and apparently he's smoking marijuana on his earnings calls. So this seems like, how do you, how do you put those two together? And then inevitably, when you pull centralized things like this and it's about scoring and about allowing the investment in some sort of thing, politics come into the fray. And that's where you already now, if Twitter was a publicly traded company, you could imagine people would be scoring Twitter now based on their views on what Elon Musk is doing, not necessarily an objective ESG framework. And that's, that's where centralizing a process of allowing people to invest in something or not based on someone else's score is where it becomes really interesting. Well, I'm watching this in Europe as there's a lot of companies that are saying we're not allowed to invest in something unless it meets these criteria. And let's just say, hopefully it's good. Let's not even argue whether or not it's a good or bad uh, criteria. Let's just say it is good. Are we still in favor of a centralized process saying whether or not people can or cannot invest in these different areas? Right. And then I'll make it really specific. And this goes back to what we were mentioning earlier when I don't think people have fully thought out worldviews and it comes into fray here. There's a lot of people who are very, very pro ESG and they have a anti fossil fuel view, which again, I'm not even trying to say if that's right or wrong, except for the fact that if you ban all fossil fuels, we are eliminating natural gas, which seems to be the best possible solution to lower emissions immediately, which if I'm hearing this person correctly, is what they care about more than anything in the world. So first, use natural gas to shut down coal, not ban all fossil fuels. But if you're using an ESG framework, fossil fuels tend to score very, very poorly. And then CO2 emission-based uh, scores come out very poorly. And so that's where I think the intention is good as usual, but I think the application of it might lead people into doing things that have unintended consequences. Absolutely. And just to add to that, you know, this is where we also see there's no agreement between, I mean, okay, to paint the picture for listeners who perhaps don't work in this industry or don't know about ESG, you know, th these criteria, as you say, they're, they're, they're pretty subjective. And they're being scored by different ratings agencies. And these ratings agencies can't actually come up with a consensus view. You know, so you might have, I'm just pull a few names out of the hat here, but Bloomberg and Sustainalytics, you know, there's loads of others out there as well. And when you actually start looking at certain companies through the lens of each of these companies, one will have it as, yeah, this is great. One will have it as, no way, don't touch it. And the other was what I have it is, well, it's okay. I actually think that adds to the benefit because, you know, kind of what you're saying is there is no one way to view a company. I think the danger comes into what you're saying is when we decide that there is only one way, one view of a company and we start applying regulation. That's the, the scary point. And I think from a behavioral point of view, 
you know, there's a, there's a lot here, which I think is dangerous. I take my hat off to people who are putting their money towards these things in, in the hope that they're changing the world. I don't believe ESG is changing the world. As you say, the company that just, just stands there burning styrofoam cups, okay, in a free market society, it doesn't make any profit, goes bust, Like you don't need an ESG score for them because they don't exist anymore. And Chris, I think to for the, for the listeners, I think just to be very clear what both you and I are saying, there are scoring agencies just like there are investment rating agencies, right? Something has a good dividend score or a, a lower price to earnings score. I'm all for people being able to access experts, quote unquote, scoring companies based on something that they care about. It's when I think the thing that we're, we're talking about just for the listeners is when regulations come out. Like, I don't think you and I would think it would be a good regulation just to make it uh, apolitical. If somebody said, look at what happened during the tech bubble. We are passing a law. You are not allowed to invest in a company whose PE ratio is over 25, right? And so while there might be good wisdom in that, you then wouldn't have invested in the companies that have gotten us to the world we're in right now. And so that's, I just want to be clear that it's, I'm not saying the scoring systems are bad, but all for it. If you want your company, if you want to know everything about your company from an ESG perspective, then I'm all for the market setting up these services. Like you mentioned the several of the excellent ones and then people being able to pick and choose. It's when the laws come back from the central authorities and say, you're not allowed to invest in such and such. That's where I think stifles. Yeah, absolutely. Because then you're starting to take away choice. And when you start taking away choices, you know, is, you know, maybe this is a nice topic to kind of like end on is that's when we stop innovation. And we've got to look back. We've got to look back and realize that the one key trait of humans as a species is that we are the most innovative, adaptable, creative thing that has ever been on this planet. Okay. We have walked out of situations where we should not have walked out on. That's not luck, but we've innovated our way out of it. And I think that if we're too heavy with regulation at this point or degrowth takes in because we're fearful of the unknown, then we stifle innovation. We stifle the future that everybody wants. And that's the key thing. Everybody is saying we want a better future, whichever side of the coin we're on. It's the mechanism of how you get there. And when you look at this through history, free market capitalist societies not only typically have better innovation levels, they also typically have better quality of life. Actually, I was doing a podcast um, that was launched beginning of March. This was uh, with a futurist who specializes in youth engagement around demographics. So he's, um, and, and what he's, his argument is that we're all focused on overpopulation and not the bigger thing, which is population degrowth. A declining global population is far more significant for our sector. And what we got onto, which is exactly the same point we're now talking about, is that that isn't just a mega trend to be talking about and the economic consequences. It becomes a human rights issue. And that's the most important thing around some of these things, isn't it? Totally agree with you. I can't tell you when one of the the last person that brought up an overpopulated world to me, I was on a walk in your beautiful country here in these rolling green hills. And we're in the green belt down here. And I think we we're in Buckinghamshire. And 
this person said, you know, it's just sad the world's so overpopulated. And I was like, I can't see a person for 25 miles. What are you talking about? Well, population density in Mexico City. I'm okay. Population density in pockets of the world. Sure. And that can be alleviated. But as far as I can see, we can fit another 10 million people in this area right here because I'm looking at a space bigger than the size of the, the circle of the M25. And they were like, well, but that would get rid of all the farming. I'm like, we're not farming any of this. Like, so I, I'm all for protecting the environment, but I think that's where it gets to what exactly what we talked about earlier, a topic. I believe the world's overpopulated. Why do you believe that? That's my favorite question now. Why do you believe this? Well, because it's obvious. I, why do you think the world is overpopulated? That's what, you know, India, Mexico City. I go, okay, I'm happy for you to think a city is overpopulated, but why do you think the world is overpopulated? We're in the West throwing away so much food, right? And so when you're bringing up the birth, the declining birth rate in the West, I fully agree with you. That is a terrifying exercise to work that out over the next couple of decades. And the only reason I'm not too worried about it is because of what we started in the beginning. The technologies of blockchain and AI and robotics are likely to support us in our 80s and 90s and pick me off the floor when I can't stand up. But absolutely. And this is, this is actually the beauty. You've just brought this full circle. And now I th what we're talking about here is what I refer to as the invisible world. Okay. Most people are just focused on the visible world. Or think of this as an iceberg, the events and things going on. And that's all that they're really focusing on. And they pick up these sound bites that you're talking about. I believe this, I believe that because they've been told that. But it's when you start looking at then the invisible world below it, which is the structure and belief systems that essentially the trends and cultural philosophy, we could call it, that you start to see how all this starts to be shaped. And as you just said, technology is already coming through, which is going to help a declining population. We now start to understand with that thread, why there's a technology war going on between let's say China and US, because it's far bigger than, oh, they've got this company. It might be spying on us. Yes, that might be part of the picture, but it's way, way bigger, isn't it? Yep. I just finished the book by Chris Meller called Chip War. I would highly recommend it. It was a Financial Times business book of the year for 2022. And it really brings into focus why the US just passed the CHIPS Act and why a lot of the Western nations from European countries, even Japan, South Korea are partnering with the US. I know you and I were talking about central planning a little bit here, but in, in a previous conversation, the ability for China to have nailed what happened in the last kind of 15, 20 years. I think it was a, a lot easier. And when you do central planning, you can pick the current moment pretty well. And our chief economist always talks about how Japan nailed early manufacturing 50s, 60s, 70s, right? And into the automobile production. And then they didn't get all of the next levels. And the Nikkei still hasn't gone back to where it was in 87, I think. And we think China's in a similar position and so one of the things the U.S. is doing and the West is making sure that those particular technologies that we need to do everything we've been talking about are coming from us. If they want to do it on their own, great, but we're not going to aid them because it is a competitive world. 
we're not going to aid their ability to take our jobs or to take our uh, technologies. And again, I'm not talking about a theft issue, more of a, if we're going to be the ones that innovate and we need the chips to do it. And the chips become a really, really important thing. Chips are already more important than oil. Yeah, I'd agree with that. But uh, and yeah, because we're, we're not just talking about, oh, does China get ahead? Does the US fall behind? We're actually talking here, if we really peel this back, about the global order. Who is the enforcer of the rules and the culture? That's essentially what we're talking about. It's never really comes up in media. But, you know, we've talked about so many of these paradigms of innovation, but they are the facilitators of countries or regions taking control. They've written, obviously, James Watts' steam engine revolutionized British power and its economic might and a financial center. It became the trade center. We actually ruled the world as such. We were the chief of the economic order of the British Empire until really that, well, it started to fade in the 1900s with steel. We became complacent and Germany and the US were the two other competitors in global steel production. Germany obviously was at that point going, okay, well, we could steal this. That's a pun. That's a very bad pun, isn't it, for steel manufacturing? I apologize to everybody profusely. But, <laughs> but yeah, so Germany, Germany was like, well, we could take this global order. And thankfully for the kind of Western democracy and free trade and everything that we know about modern life, the US was also pretty damn good at this stuff called steel. And now we're just seeing that again, the next technology that China is a competitor. It's about the global order. And we've got to factor in all these other things that we've talked about. What's the implication of degrowth now? What's the implication of putting rules around what companies you can invest in in the West if the East don't? We're starting to link it all together, but. Exactly. I always, for all the times people want to celebrate central planning, I always just like to remind people that the powers you give somebody someone else gets in the future. And you really don't need to look that further than a lot of people would be happy to give some power to Barack Obama, would probably not be that happy to turn around and see Donald Trump now having that power and equally other ways around. And I know, you know, even if you go to somebody like Reagan or somebody, somebody not as politically divisive as Trump, but it, it's always going to go to someone else. And so if there's a global platform like Google, for example, had not been American, but had been Chinese for the last 20 years. How different might our information look? Yeah. And what would those perspectives and biases we have? Absolutely. And I think that's really, it's a really important point you make and, and a nice one to kind of finish on because that's the issue, isn't it? With too much regulation. I'm all for regulation and protecting private property and justice you know, the essential features of a well-functioning society. But when regulation becomes too much, it, as you say, it concentrates power in a few people or sometimes even a single person. At that point, we tend to get in trouble and people don't see that actually it's a gradual move to that. They don't necessarily vote for that on day one, but over time you hand over more and more power to say, we're not best suited to make these decisions. We're going to give you control. I know you guys have some great stories about centrally planned economies because Brian, where's Brie, your, your chief economist, always dishes these out. Do you have any you can share to finish? I'm going to 
make a, a, a parallel link because some people don't know there might be listeners that are like, well, I'm not, I'm not worried about voting for a centrally planned economy. One of the key critical elements of digitalization is that when a thing goes digital, it shrinks the market participants. And so while the internet from the beginning was said to diversify and, and provide free access, it ended up creating these walled gardens. And Google is the singular place you go for information. It used to be libraries, right? And something like that. And you think about what you buy. There's, you know, in the UK, you've got Marks and Spencers and Sainsbury's and Amazon. And in Germany, you have your local providers and Amazon. And, you know, you watch on TV here, BBC and Netflix. And in the US, CBS and Netflix, right? So digital shrinks market participants and network effect builds centrally planned areas. And so what we're finding out uh, across the world now is that Facebook became a central and Instagram, a central place where people are coming to. And the newest technology, uh, they fixed this already, but in the beginning, if you asked ChatGPT to write a poem about or say something nice about Joe Biden, it would do that. If you said, say something nice about Donald Trump, it would say, I cannot do that. Now, they've, I've been told that they fixed that for already, but that's the element of centrally planned that we in the West miss in that if we're not looking for it, because the platforms are so efficient and so amazing, these digital services shrink the market participants in such that we are interacting, say, on Twitter, where potentially some people are getting censored that, and we don't know that, or in Instagram or some centrally planned area. We don't know, you know, we assume Google hasn't been censored in our example, right? It could have been, and it can, right? And so that's where we in the West, if we view and value not centrally planned areas, that's a key thing. And so uh, one of those stories you were trying to say was that in the late stages of the Soviet Union, our chief economist loves telling the story that they had ordered something like millions of coats because it was centrally planned and they wanted to get coats to their people, but somebody forgot to order the buttons. So here they had millions of coats with no buttons. And it's a joke, except Russia's a very cold country. <laughs> and so, you know, it sounds funny, but that's the problem with centrally planned anything, whether it's the Soviet Union or uh, a central digital service, right? And remember, you might be happy that they censor certain people. But just remember that power that you give them can then be turned against you at some point in the future. So you, we got to be very careful with where we, uh, with who, where and who we let have this central power. Yeah, absolutely. And in a free market economy, coming back to that, that brilliant story about coats, nobody would have bought them because there would be other competitors who did remember buttons. And so the following year, you get this step change in quality. You replace somebody who's not doing the job properly with somebody who is, and there's no singular voting mechanism. Actually, that's the way I view money is it, it's a voting machine. Whenever we spend our pounds or dollars or euros, we're voting for that service or product we're buying. That's the way I see it is just a big voting machine. 
And the companies that do things really well, that we love, that we hand more money over to, we're giving them more votes. Uh, that's important. It's that in that we have, you know, in, in futures thinking, we often talk about the agency we have in the future. So I, we're the ones responsible for changing it. We're not powerless. And I think that's one of the big things that people are feeling that they're powerless to do things because of these big companies or because of this movement. But I guess the point I want to finish on is that we have that agency. And to your point, companies like Apple are choosing to hand that agency back to the customer. They're not keeping it central. They're choosing to say, I'm going to give it back. They continue to be rewarded with the, the dollars, both at the customer level and the investment level. Thank you so much for such a great conversation. I'm going to put a link into the show notes to some of the things that we've touched on, maybe like that Harvard Business Review article that you mentioned at the start and the book. Absolutely. And I'll just say for your audience, because you can't say this, it'll sound too self-promotional, but I did finish a book called Decoding Change by yourself. I will tell all of you on, on this, uh, on this podcast, it, that book is fantastic. It's an excellent review of these four step changes and lining out not just a blind optimism, but recognizing some of the negative things we've talked about on even today. And I really, I just wanted to tell you, thank you. I thought your book, again, Decoding Change was just a, it was a really good book. God, no, thank you so much. You, you can come on the end of every podcast, Greg. They're awesome. Thank you so much for such a good chat. You've been listening to Transitional Matters. Make sure to like, subscribe, and sign up to the show's email newsletter by going to chrismarshall.uk. And we'll see you next time for more from the world of mega trends and transitions. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Content should be treated as educational and general and should not be seen as a recommendation to use any particular investment strategy.